Welcome to this crime story podcast, which was recorded live in Newcastle upon Tyne on Saturday, 19th of May. In this recording, we join writer Denise Mina as she talks to Professor Katie Shaw about her work and writing life. We open with Denise reading the crime story that she was commissioned to write for the event, which was the focus of a series of panel events in which real police and legal professionals explored how they would have approached solving the crime in real life. I always feel I should be taller when I get an introduction like that, like I should spawn on in platforms or stilts or something like that. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you part of this story and there isn't really a, a, the solution to the story is whatever you want it to be. So don't feel that you have to try and guess what's in my head. There's nothing worse than um, trying to imagine what someone else thought of. So take it wherever you want to. I'm going to stop halfway through. And then at the end of the day, I think we're going to tell you why you were wrong. We're not really. <laughs> I'm such a bad lecturer. <laughs> um, okay, so this is the first part of the story. Cobham, Surrey. The Nice Part, that's the title. That's funny if you've ever been to Cobham, Surrey, because it's all so swanky. The local plod were rarely called to this street. PC Mady Parker was a little bit excited. It was super posh. Chelsea's training ground was just behind the enormous house with its bricked over driveway and grounds. Her partner, Joe, wasn't interested in massive houses and football. The 999 call had come from a neighbour, slightly concerned but mostly annoyed, that a huge SUV had been sitting between the automatic gates on the driveway, engine running, indicators on for an hour. The caller said that the Chinese or something wife had just arrived in her own BMW sports car, eased past the running SUV, drove up to the house, got out and went indoors. I mean... The bloody engine had been running there for an hour. Think of the environment. Whether the emergency services operator did or did not think of the environment that morning was not recorded. Mady and Joe pulled up to the curb and took in the scene. A large McMansion house, not very nice. Red brick driveway leading straight to the house. At an upstairs doorway, half hidden behind a curtain, stood a small elderly woman in a grey dress. She was looking anxiously at the SUV. As they approached the SUV, Mary caught her eye and raised a hand to the woman in greeting, but the woman disappeared behind a curtain. Why don't they just come out and look, said Joe. There was clearly something wrong. The car was big, the side lights and indicator were on, and it was pumping exhaust fumes gently into the air. A well-dressed Filipino man in his early 30s was slumped at the wheel with no sign of injury. His lips were blue, he had no pulse and he was cold. Joe turned off the engine. He called it in and said he would wait while Mady approached the house. She rang the bell and waited. She waited for quite a long time, listening to whispers and scurrying around inside to doors being slammed upstairs. She rang again and waited for so long that the ambulance had arrived to attend to the man in the SUV before it opened. The woman was handsome. Quite beautiful, in fact. Slim, Filipino like her husband, almond-eyed, coffee-skinned. She introduced herself as Amilla Thomas, Mrs. Thomas. What's that ambulance doing on my property? What's going on down there? That's my husband's car. Could maybe come in? Mrs. Thomas blinked several times and then said, yes, of course, come in. Oh, the hallway, the hallway. It was so vulgar. It made Mady glad she was a pauper. 
It was all white marble with a massive Turkish flag mosaic in the middle of the floor and a big Fred Astaire staircase. Mrs. Thomas led her into the kitchen. It was a nice room, all white, very new, just finished off in fact. Off cuts from the newly fitted cupboards were still sitting in a masonry bag by the back door. She sat Mrs. Thomas down and told her the dreadful news. Your husband, I'm afraid, so sorry. Mrs. Thomas did not seem surprised. Quite annoyed, yeah, but not really terribly sad about it. She said, okay, you can go now. She flicked her wrist as if she was dismissing an impertinent waiter. We won't be going away right now, Mrs. Thomas. We need to stay and find out what happened to your husband. No, said Mrs. Thomas, you can just go. Mady didn't know what to say to that, so she just carried on talking to her as if she was upset. Is there anyone I can find to sit with you? Mrs. Thomas leaned back in her chair and screamed, Auntie! The woman in grey who had watched the car from the window scurried into the kitchen. She was in her 70s wearing a servant's uniform. She didn't look at Mady at all, though she was wearing full uniform and had stood up to meet her. The woman's red and swollen eyes were on the implacable Mrs. Thomas. Madam, Edward is dead, Auntie Lola. Auntie Lola slumped and fell to her knees. Hindi, she said, Hindi. An interpreter was called, and despite her protestations, Amila Tomas was separated from Auntie Lola for the purposes of questioning. They gave very, very different stories. Amila said they were renting the house. Auntie Lola said they had bought it. Mady told her boss that they must have bought it. You don't put a new kitchen in a rental property. There was no paperwork showing Dr. Thomas or Mrs. Thomas owned the house. It was valued at 1.4 million and had been registered to a Turkish family. Ownership had then been transferred to a holding company in the Cayman Islands, but there had been no sale. Something very strange was going on. <laughs> Thank you. children in the house, age ranges from 4 to 12, all homeschooled, but there were no books or materials. The children were looked after by Auntie Lola. Mrs Thomas spent a lot of time at the gym and shopping in London. Rooms of the house were crammed with bags of clothes and shoes she had bought at expensive shops in Mayfair. All the receipts said she had paid cash. Auntie Lola would not speak about Mrs Thomas, but the children said she was not their mother. Their mother had died in Manila. The current Mrs Tomas had been with them for two years, but they didn't like her. She beat Auntie Lola so much and she had a boyfriend. Papa was angry last night because she had stayed out all night. For her part, Mrs Tomas explained that they had met two years ago and he married her within weeks. He wanted a nanny, but she was a wife. She had a degree in English literature. She wasn't supposed to leave the house without his permission, so she spent very little time in the house. To show him he'd made a mistake. She wasn't that kind of woman. She was not an Auntie Lola. 
The family were foreign nationals in the UK on a temporary eight-month visa so that Mr Tomas, a doctor, could sit his Royal Academy of Surgeons diploma. After the exams, Dr Tomas had applied for asylum in the USA on the grounds that it was not safe for him to return to the Philippines. Political differences with the current regime. Auntie Lola had no paperwork at all, not even back in the Philippines. Through the interpreter, she said she had looked after Dr Tomas since he was a baby and his mother before him. She was genuinely terribly upset at his death. Mady asked, could they go to her room and have a chat? Even through the interpreter, Auntie Lola didn't seem to understand what she meant. Mady asked, where did she sleep? Auntie Lola showed her the utility room and pointed to a clothes basket with towels folded in it. She slept there. The interpreter, really just a teacher from a local FE college, began to cry and Auntie Lola comforted her, holding her and murmuring over and over. The two women were sobbing and holding each other and Mady looked away. It was a fancy utility room. They had five kids, but still, who needs a commercial clothes dryer in a domestic house? The front was removed and inside they found a huge quantity of counterfeit fentanyl and oxycotton. At the autopsy, Dr Tomas's toxicology report showed that he had died from a massive overdose of fentanyl ingested with his omelette at breakfast. It was a high dose of a very fast-acting drug. He had no sign of long-term use of the drug, no tolerance at all. He had been poisoned. The children told the police that Auntie Lola prepared all the food. She left breakfast trays outside their bedrooms every morning. She was wonderful. They loved her because she always remembered what everyone liked. Omelette for mummy, protein shake for daddy. <gasps> <laughs> to do to write a story that that makes the reader want to turn to somebody and talk at the end about what happened and um, but really what I wanted to highlight there were a few things the Mrs Tomas who I have the utmost respect for is an unsympathetic victim and they're the best kind of victim because <laughs> it was so interesting listening to the law panel before mm. where they were talking about you know victims who become perpetrators or you know in in uh, um, the, the cliched version of a victim is someone who's very nice mm. um, and uh, uh, or sympathetic or is um, asking for pity but what do you do with a victim who's not asking you to sympathize with them mm. and who's actually quite obnoxious how do you write that? No, how do you do it? How do you well, create that? Well, it's difficult that? to make it sustainable, isn't it? But the thing mm. is, you know, um, she's come over here as a slave, like Auntie Lola is mm. essentially a slave. And uh, and she's refused to comply with that role. And she's going out and spending money all the time and getting boyfriends. And um, she thinks she's too good for it. But, you know, I mean, I think... I think if you're if you're writing, because I think most of you are writers, mm. if you're writing and you find you're writing a cliched character, it's a good thing to ask yourself, what is the opposite of that? And then not write that, but write something else. Right. So, you know, an obnoxious, you know, a, 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 
a, a slave is very sad and sorry and cries and it's a shame for them, like Auntie Lola. And then the opposite of that is someone who is very fighty and tries to get away. But what is the, you know, most of us make compromises and are in the middle ground somewhere. Mm. And uh, and I think that makes characters much more compelling if they're not, what, if, the, if the reader doesn't read the first three lines about them and think, oh, I know exactly who that is. So I know exactly where that narrative is going to go. To reverse the type, to make it more dynamic, more interesting. Yeah, I think it makes it more believable as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it makes it more um, more of a compelling read. Mm, you know? Because you've got control, I guess, in that aspect. But for a lot of, well, maybe the fiction that people have read of yours that is, is maybe less control is when you're writing about real life real-life criminals yeah. who have well-documented pasts and contentious pasts. So if we're thinking a little bit about that shift, as an author, how do you handle writing this kind of genre that people can contentiously call faction, that fact-fiction combination? How do the politics of that sit for you in terms of your practice of writing as well? Well, I, because I write a lot of books that are based on truth. So I wrote, I wrote a series of books um, about a character called Paddy Meehan, and Paddy Meehan in Scotland was a well-known criminal case of a guy who draw, who was supposed to have uh, beaten up this very elderly couple and tied them up and stole lots of money. They had a bingo hall and left them to die in their house for three days. And he was uh, in prison and he was released actually because of a campaign by a campaigning journalist called uh, Ludovic Kennedy. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was a really huge case at the time. It's kind of slipping out of public consciousness now. But so I've, I've always written about true facts mixed with fiction. And I, I, you know, I really, I don't think that's a new thing. I don't think fact fiction um, blending together is a new thing. Most of the crime writers I know get their ideas from newspapers. And that is very, very consistent. If you go back to people like Dr. Johnson, mm. who wrote a biography of a very well-known criminal who'd been done for murder, you know, that fact fiction blending, we, I mean, I think it's a nonsense to say they're separate because they're just not separate. Um, but you do have to be careful you don't get sued. That's, that's you know, something you do have to be very careful about or that you're not defamatory about people. Mm. Um, uh, and but, I mean, I think because crime fiction is very responsive to the times, because most people write a book a year and they come out, you know, a year and a half later, they do pick up on sort of zeitgeist issues. And if you're writing about jewellery theft, uh, that's not really going to feel that dynamic to people now. Do you know what I mean? Even historic, sometimes particularly historic crime um, fiction is really talking about the present day. And, uh, and it needs to talk about issues that resonate with an audience or feel important because you know puzzle books are well and fine but most of us read them when we've got the flu because <laughs> they're quite entertaining but they're not the books that you really lie awake and think about you know? does that position you then as having quite and an, an our colleagues in this room as having a socially responsible role as a crime fiction writer i think we have a hugely important role i i, I mean i do you know listening to the the legal panel talk about three girls yeah. I started, I was doing a PhD in mental illness and female offenders, which was about the differential rates of ascription of mental illness. So essentially at that time, if you were a female offender and you did anything violent, you would be assessed psychiatrically and you'd be given psychiatric treatment. The main prison in Scotland was essentially a psychiatric facility. Um, and Holloway was rebuilt as a, a psychiatric facility from being, you know, a normal prison with, you know, cells and, and galleries that you could watch, every, you know, like an op panopticon. Mm. Um, and male prisons became more uh, punitive and, you know, more regimented. Um, so men and women were being treated very differently. 
and uh, uh, you know, and I thought it was a way of stripping agency away from women. I mean, I met one woman who kept being psychiatrically assessed because she kept she kept robbing people with knives, and uh, she was just a mental case mm -hmm. who wanted to rob people with knives because she wanted the stuff they had. Mm -hmm. And uh, but if she had been a man, no one would have looked at her mental health. Um, I'm not saying it's wrong to look at people's mental health. I'm not saying it's right to look at. I'm just saying it was very very striking. So I was writing a PhD and I thought no one's ever going to read this. This is of no, you know, no one's ever, ever going to read this, how the agency is stripped from women's actions, um, how you have to be a victim to uh, to be understood by the, the, uh, the, you know, it's not just the courts, it's the whole society. Um, and, um, you know, that women can never deliberately do things and have social meaning. It's always because she was nuts. Um, and... Uh, uh, and, and I thought if you wrote this in a crime novel, people would read it and it, it, then it diffuses down into the culture. And it's a great way of disseminating your ideas or not even my ideas, actually. They were far cleverer than me. People had written books about them and I thought I'd like to disseminate those ideas. But I think crime fiction is, um, you know, it really informs the way we look at the world and who can be a victim, what crimes mean, how, you know, um, how we understand social rupture is so important and uh, you know for example in the states at the moment um, they've redefined all sex work as trafficking mm. uh, which you might think is incredibly sympathetic and that's part of that is because so many books have been published in the states about you know women being trafficked and women being forced into sex work and women being brought up from Mexico and um, Russian women coming over in containers and uh, all that kind of thing. It's really, really kindly meant. But what it means essentially is if you work in, a, in the area of sex work, um, which I have no judgment on, it means that you're treated as a victim, which means that you cannot um, set up websites to support each other. It also means you can't have a man living in the house because he will be the person who's trafficking you, which means you can't live with your boyfriend or you can't have your elderly dad live with you or, and you can't have anyone there to guard you. You're much more likely to get murdered. I mean, it's the, the implications of the way we narrate these events are so important and if you present people with a different way of understanding the world uh in a narrative that's incredibly compelling you know and gender narration clearly that if you impose gender frameworks around some of these issues then suddenly yeah. they change meaning yes exactly like some some um philip pencher i met him at the bath festival yesterday and he was saying he's judging a prize for canadian fiction and he said about a third of all the books are about the immigrant experience that's so interesting. Mm. That's going to fundamentally change yeah. the way people regard their culture in 10 years' time. Mm. And their first-person experiences, some of them are memoirs, some of them are fictionalised. But the fact that, you know, that I mean, there's a real... There's hardly any um, uh, books about the immigrant experience in Britain. And I think that's one of the reasons mm. that we have the atmosphere that we do at the moment. Because I think narrative, you know, that the legal panel are saying is, this is not a story, it's real life. Mm. But the way we understand real life is a story, of course. you know, the way the way we construct reality is narrative. And and I think that that is one of the reasons that we're so churlish about storytelling. If you spend time with, you know, very proper writers, not filth like us, um, <laughs> uh, they're always very clear that narrative is not important to them. And uh, and I just think they're missing a trick. You know, I really do think they're missing a trick because what is writing? Writing is not. Um, you know, a one-way process. You're not writing stuff down and then people are lucky enough to have access to your genius. It's a collusion between a writer and a reader. And um, 
I've read some terrible books that were brilliant when I was reading them, really awful crap that was really badly written, but they were brilliant books when I was reading them because of the time I was reading them, because I was you know, fed up and just needed a really good trashy book, because I was having trouble writing my own book and I needed someone to feel better than. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant ambition. I want to know what books they were. <laughs> I, I don't want to tell you the names, but I'll whisper it to you later. But uh, most writers have someone they read when the writing's going really badly. And go, God, that's garbage. <laughs> Ego booster. Nice. Um, and true crime, actually, because I've always read true crime on lots of different levels. Ghosted true crime is amazing mm -hmm. if you read it, because there's always a tension between the ghostwriter and the criminal. And the ghostwriter is obviously someone who's been to Cambridge and thinks they'll be able to <laughs> write their poem about Shelley <laughs> if they do this job in publishing. Um, and having to spend someone with, time with someone who's just an idiot, <laughs> quite malevolent, you know. And uh, and how do they hint that? In fact, do you remember the Jigsaw Man? Mm. Do you remember that book? Well, the ghostwriter who wrote that did not like Paul Britton, and that is why. Because I don't know if you read that book, you're like, oh, that's amazing, it's so interesting. But at the end of every chapter, it says, you know, and. I could do this because I'm such a humble man. It says it at the end of every single chapter. And, and every time I came across it, I thought, that's a bit funky. And he was like, yeah, I didn't like him. That's why I put that in. <laughs> <laughs> Internal critique. I like yeah, that. yeah, well, it's going on, yeah. That's fantastic. So ego boost writers. Ego boost writers. <laughs> we'll have to find those out. Yeah. Um, we've got about 15, 20 minutes of questions. And I know you've not been able to speak to Denise all day. So... If we get our mics up and mobile, if you can put your hands up, if you've got now you can ask about this. absolutely anything about getting published or where to get your dress or, or <laughs> anything. Um, how do you go about plotting your story? Do you have an idea of everything that's going to happen and have notes, or does you just sit down and write and it eventually gets there, or how do you do? How do you do that? Good question. Well, when I, when I was writing my second book, I got so stuck, I bought a book called How to Write a Detective Novel. And it had chapters by people like Dennis Lehane and, I mean, absolutely brilliant people. And they all said, plot, write out what happens in every chapter and make up, put it on the wall and just work your way through. And at the end of most chapters, they said, I don't do this, but this is technically how <laughs> and, uh, and actually, I think there's a real kind of joy in not doing that. And what I like to do, it's very scary, is, you know, it's like pulling the parachute at the last minute, is start with an inciting incident. And e each series I've written has started in a different way. The Alex Morrow books start with um, the impossible question. So there's a scenario that, that raises a question. So if you think of this, the perfect shape for a crime fiction book is you have this massive explosion at the beginning and that throws out lots of information and questions and the rest of the book is answering those questions in a perfect narrative arc. Um, Graham Greene, when he was writing what he called his entertainments or what I call his books that made money, um, <laughs> he, he said you have to always be aware of the question in the reader's mind and I think that's a brilliant motto to live by because I might be very interested in something but what the reader is wondering is who's behind the door or what, what is the reader wondering about? What, what is drawing, the, what is the pending question? Have you read The Da Vinci Code? That's a really interesting book. That's one of the books I read when I'm needing to go questions on else. Uh, but the structure of that is brilliant and it is very clean and clever. And what he does, he, it's the same chapter um, structure all the way through as uh, he asks a question at the end of a chapter. Why did um, Da Vinci draw 
earrings on Jesus. Next chapter, cut the chapter. Also, where you cut your chapter is very important for attention as well. Um, so why has Jesus got earrings on? Let's, we'll need to find that out. Next chapter, Jesus has earrings on because something or other. We better go there. They go there, they find another question. Jesus is also wearing a bracelet. <laughs> Next chapter. So he, an he answers a question and then, answer then raises another question. So you're reading on, because I don't know if you've ever read a book that you hated. You strike me as people who read quite obsessively, probably all. <laughs> uh, but the ones that I don't throw aside are the ones where I think, I'll just wait till I find out what happened to so-and-so. Um, that's really masterful. I mean, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm making fun of the Da Vinci Code, but it's actually a very, very clever book. And it is badly written, but it's very clever that you can make people read that. And I used to read a lot of American crime fiction where the police would find irrefutable evidence of guilt of someone who looked foreign maybe, maybe a bit Jewish. I mean, American crime fiction is very dodgy. And the police would find all this evidence um, and sometimes they would say, they are, you know, serial killers are a different breed than the rest of us. I mean, really fascist <laughs> rubbish. But I would read to the end to find out what happens. Um, and they usually shot them in an alley because that was justice, you know. Uh, but, but I stayed with it because I wanted to find the answer to the pending question. So I think if you start with an explosive thing uh, and then you, uh, you try and draw a nice arc and have a resolution, you must have some sort of resolution. If you can imagine the explosion and the resolution and then bridge your way to the end, I think it's much more fun to get a bit lost because the reader will then get a bit lost. Um, and two thirds of the way through, you will think, I can't do this, I don't know what I'm doing. I've written 15 books and I think that every time. And my friends say to me, you say that every time. <laughs> uh, but that means that you're really, really engaged with the plot. and. Uh, uh, also, you can draw big diagrams for yourself of what happens and how did they get there from there. And if you, you've written a brilliant book and the story doesn't work, the detective can go off and smoke cigarettes and arrive at a conclusion they couldn't possibly arrive at on the basis of that information. <laughs> you know those moments where they go off and they have an internal dialogue and they have a bit of a think about things or they get drunk or something like that or they go for a drive and they realise something. They would never realise that from those clues. <laughs> uh, but that, that works for some reason, I don't know why. Wow. <laughs> so do you physically plot out of interest? Have you got like a wall or a whiteboard? Do you physically plot no, it out? I, and... I, I actually obsessively make lists of the chapters. What happens here? What happens here? What happens here? And then, and I've got special pencils. And so I love stationery. And um, uh, and fetish way yeah, in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, um, so I write out what's happening in each chapter, and then I write in red what's missing from each chapter, mm. and then I write out a list of things to do, and then I tick them off as I do them. And also remember what Hemingway said, which is every first draft is shit. So you have to, you're reading people's finished books and comparing it to your first draft. You have to be quite kind to yourself and you have to forgive yourself for being quite shit. And that's the only way you'll get better. But I think people think writing a book is going to make you feel great about yourself, but it's actually really, really humbling because you are face to face with your own limitations every single day. And then you have to go out and promote it and talk about how great it is to be you. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be saying this if this was the public, but you're other writers. <laughs> Brilliant question. I think we've got one down the front and then we'll come over there. Yes, could you just tell us how you got started? Because that, that first step into publishing always seems to be the most difficult. Um, 
how did I get started? I just, you know what, I was 32 and I was always, I was an academic and I was always thinking, I'm a shit academic and I was really not that committed to academia. And, uh, and I kept thinking, but I really want to be a writer. And I got to 32 and I thought, you should just try and be a writer and fail at being a writer and then you could get on with being an unhappy academic. <laughs> um, so I wrote... I'd written novels and I'd never sent them to anybody and I was so fragile that I showed one novel to somebody and they said, first of all, you're going to rewrite this, aren't you? And I didn't hear anything else they said and I never wrote for years, you know. And um, uh, then, so I, I thought, I'm, I'm going to try. So I wrote the first 80 pages of a novel and then I was filling in for a friend as a receptionist and misusing the phones. And I phoned directory inquiries, which that shows my age. And, uh, and I said, could you give me the number of agents in London, uh, literary agents? And they said, whereabouts in London? I couldn't think of anywhere in London. I said, oh, uh, Chelsea. Uh, so I got three. I uh, should have got the writer and artist yearbook, by the way. This is what you <laughs> should do. And look up agents who publish, uh, agents who represent people whose work you like or your work is a bit like. And, uh, and I sent them off the first three chapters with a cover letter. And this is the best advice you're ever going to get. I lied on the cover letter and I said, I'm a massive extrovert and I've been doing lots of stand-up comedy. <laughs> and I love attention. <laughs> I was incredibly shy. I love attention. I don't feel ambivalent about that at all. And uh, um, I'll do tons of promotion. And uh, perhaps you'd like to read this book I've written all of. And uh, anyways, an agent wrote back and said, can I see the rest of it? So I sat down and I, I wrote the rest of it. And, and that, I had a lot of friends who were writing books at the time. We were all trying to write crime novels at the time. And, um, uh, and I'm the only one who got a book published because I was the only one that finished, because I was the only one who had the attitude of, I'm just going to chance my arm. Not, uh, maybe this will mean such and such to me, but just give it a go. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, some people have enormous senses of entitlement, but most of us don't. And most of us, you can overcome not having that sense of entitlement by thinking, you know, don't be precious, just give it a go, just jump in. You don't need to take your shoes off, just jump in. So... Um, I, I wrote the rest of it in a very, a very quick time, sent it off. My agent took it to a publisher and they, at Transworld and they said they would publish it and, um, and basically I was unconscious for about a week. <laughs> I really couldn't believe it. So that's how that happened. But once you move on, the follow-up is more difficult because more people have one book published than have a lot of books published. So if you really love sitting at the desk... That's what you need to be thinking about. And publishers love you to go in and say, this is one of three, this is one of five. I understand this business and this is what's going to happen. I'm going to do another book. I'm in the middle of another book. Uh, you know, uh, and, and the more you write, the better you get at it. You know? um, but the, the, the main thing you do is sit at the desk and promotion is very little of what you do. It's a really tiny wee bit of it. You know? If you think about um, uh, you know, if you were uh, working on a building site and digging holes, Digging holes is most of what you would do, but you know, going for the coffee once every two weeks—that's a promotion. Is that so? If promotion is the the thing that you think you would enjoy, do stand-up comedy because there are jobs in that. Do you know what I mean? But none of you look as if you're desperate to get up in front of millions of people. You're all going like that. <laughs> yeah. Good question. I think we've got another question over here. Uh, hi. Uh, I was just wondering if you could describe the experience of. Uh uh, adapting the Millennium Trilogy, because uh, I was thinking about what you said about D Dan Brown, I found the Millennium Trilogy to be brilliantly plotted and very dense to read, whereas 
maybe not the best written thing in the world, whereas the, the graphic novel the graphic novel trilogy is excellent. Oh, thank it's you very so well much. Written. Thank you. Uh, I'm not saying that just because you were nice to me earlier on, but it helps. <laughs> uh, so I was just wondering what that was like, because also I, I remember seeing you a few years ago and you talked about kind of adding your own emphasis to that as well as a writer so I'm, I'm just one i'm just wondering what that experience was like that's so funny we were just talking we literally about that, were just talking about that because yeah. i teach the millennium trilogy here at northumbria as nordic noir and i refuse to teach the novel i only teach denise's graphic novel because um, the novel is so problematic I, I wrote the millennium trilogy you know the, the girl with the dragon tattoo i wrote that as graphic novels and that was so it was such an interesting adaptation there's all sorts of politics around the estate of Stieg larson um and they they contacted me and said would you well my New York agent contacted me and said, would you be interested in writing this? And, uh, and I said, I'd love to do that because writing comics is... F Does anyone here write comics? No. Oh. Um, uh, there's very little money in it, so you're probably making the right choice there. <laughs> uh, but writing comics is so interesting. You can actually feel your brain moving in different ways because you have to write a script. You have to like draw panels, like six, say six squares on your page, and then see what happens in it and describe all the images in it and where the light's coming from and are they seen from the back or the front? What's their expression? And then you have to write, uh, you know, uh, like maybe 40 words of dialogue, 30 or 40 is the most you can possibly do. And the books are huge, big, chunky things. So it had to be written over... Uh, it was supposed to be three narrative arcs of 192 pages. Uh, it was very, very, very technical stuff. So what I did was I, I went through the books chapter by chapter and broke down what happened. And if you've read those books, you'll know that, that, that quite a lot of the chapter heading said, and I used a lot of stationery, <laughs> it, it was a great project, um, quite a lot of the chapter said nothing. Mm -hmm. Just nothing happens in this chapter. Um, uh, or it's all talking about, you know, guff anyway. Um, so, uh, so quite a lot of it could be stripped out. And it, it, it was, but I mean, it was a brilliant writing exercise. And it, actually, if there's a book that you really love or someone you would like to write like, that's a great exercise to do of an afternoon is go through chapter by chapter and work out what happens and work out why you couldn't stop reading it. That's a, you know, reading is one of the most important things you can do as a writer. Um, and so worked out what had to go in and what could be taken out. And also I changed quite a lot of the politics because if you've read the trilogy, it's, un it's in one book she's anorexic and in the next book she's autistic and in one book she as if they're the same thing and then in the next in one book she's lesbian but he's so attractive she has to have sex with him because he's just so attractive because he's a fat journalist and uh, <laughs> um, uh, things like that so I changed quite a lot of the politics of it and just made her consistent and then and and the estate said you know you've changed you've changed quite a lot <laughs> and, and I just kept saying well it's you know, it's, the thing is, it's comics and the graphic form is such a different form. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so it's just, it's just because it's comics and comics are like a really weird, you know, uh, so uh, just kind of being obscure. Uh, but, it, but it is a really fascinating writing exercise that, you know, to strip things out. But it was brilliant. I love writing comics. It's so interesting because you have to think about, this is really interesting for writers actually, when you're writing a comic, if you have like, and you know, everyone's gathered in the drawing room, they're all looking around suspiciously, the murderer is in the room, you don't reveal the murderer there. 
You want them to turn over the page for the big reveal. So they, they, in comics, they have things like reveals and you have like a half splash or a splash, which is a full page. So, you know, it's a physical description of how to introduce tension mm -hmm. and reveals and shocks and, you know, how to space them out narratively. It's really, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're a really interesting form. They've changed so much. Like, mm -hmm. Are, you, are most of you writing crime fiction novels, I'm assuming? Um, well, crime fiction is taken very seriously now. But when I started 20 years ago, it was like an aid for people who couldn't read very well. And comics were the same. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And, I, and I used to get, if you work for DC Comics, you get a box of comics free every month. Everything they publish, they send it to you. And actually, Ian Rankin agreed to write a comic just because he thought he was going to get a free box every month and he didn't get it. <laughs> he didn't end up on the list. But um, uh, but I used to say to people, I've got all these comics, anybody want these comics? And everybody used to say, give them to people who can't read. And, you know, give them a literacy programme. But then all the movies came out and lots of money became attached mm -hmm. to comics. So suddenly comics are a valid art form. And it is about money. It's interesting, you know. Is crime fiction a valid art form? And I only ask this because literary fiction, so-called, the booker, etc. Is crime fiction still marginal on the edges here? Because we all know, know it's super lucrative. It sells better, as we found out, than almost any genre fiction put together. So do you think it is more mainstream now? Or is it still slightly, you know, the cool kid on the edges of genre fiction? I don't know. I mean, it's, I'm getting a lot more PhD theses to, write, to read right. about my work, which never ever used to happen. And I'm um, not really glad that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> How is that as a writer but, going, they're writing about me? Uh, do you know, no, I, I mean, I don't feel that I can read them. Okay. To, really, to be honest with you, because I just feel like, you know, once it's out there, people are reading it themselves. And yeah. They can say anything. I just say, you can say anything. But, I'm, you know, I don't believe in original intention. I don't really believe in that. Do you think it's taken more seriously? Come back at once. <laughs> do, <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have some time with Denise for signing books afterwards, but can you join me in thanking her for today? Thank you very much. Thank you. That was lovely. Crime Story is a project produced by New Writing North and Northumbria University.